better than Adam, better than Abraham, better than Moses, David, and Mary. He's better than the angels, better than the demons, better than any prophet, priest, or saint. Jesus is better. And there will be times when it's hard to believe. Times when that we normally forget the people upstairs. Um, so even if I don't look at you, I know you are there. Yeah? <laughs> we are continuing with the series that we have been doing, which is uh, the book of Hebrews. And today we'll pick up from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 to the end of Hebrews chapter, chapter 6. And we're going to be looking at the struggling Christian. The struggling Christian. And as is my tradition, I will try and help you catch up with all the Bible readings that you have been missing from January to today. So we'll try and read as many scriptures as um, possible. I believe the Bible explains itself. And to make sure that we have the right doctrine, we look at it throughout. So we're going to start um, from the book of Esther. Book of Esther chapter 4. Book of Esther chapter 4. Um, chapter 4 verse 10 to 12 then Esther chapter 5 verse 1 to 3 then we read quite a number so Esther chapter 4 verse 10 if I seem like I'm moving fast on the scriptures please write them down you can go um, read them when you go home Esther chapter 4 verse 10 then Esther spoke to her touch and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court of the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put he has but one law, put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter uh, that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these thirty days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. Chapter 5, verse 1 to 3. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went in, went near and touched the top of the scepter. Let's go to the book of Job. Job chapter 15, verse 1 to 7. Job chapter 15, 1 to 7. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, should a wise man answer with empty knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Should he reason with unprofitable talk or by speeches with which he can do no good? Yes, you cast off fear and restrain prayer before God, for your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, not I. Yours, your own lips testify against you. Are you the first man who was born or were you made before the hills? Let's go to Job chapter 16, verse 2 to 5, verse 2 to 6. Um, then Job answered and said, I have heard many things, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. I think we all know the story of Job. Job had lost 
everything that he had. He lost his family, his children, uh, his wealth, his possessions, um, and he had completely lost everything. And he thought he had friends, so he had three friends that came to, to comfort him. So imagine you're in a situation like Job and the, the, the statements that are coming out of your friends are, are you the first one who was born? Or are you the first one to have this problem? Are you the first one to lose your, your job? Um, so Job now says, miserable comforters are you all. And he gives them advice in verse 5 and verse 6 and says, but I will strengthen you with my mouth and the comfort of my lips will relieve your gift. So he's telling his friends, what I'm looking for is strength because I'm feeling weak right now. And the comfort of my lips, your lips, should relieve, relieve your grief. Um, but these guys were miserable comforters. They were not actually doing that uh, to him. Verse 6 says, though I speak, my grief is not relieved. And if I remain silent, how am I eased? We go to Job chapter 17, verse 1, 6, 7, 11, and 15. My spirit is broken. My days are anguished. The grave is ready for me and not mockers with me. And does not my eye dwell on their provocation? Verse 6. But he has made me a byword of the people, and I have become one in whose face men spit. My eye has grown dim because of sorrow, and all my members are like shadows. Verse 11, my days are past, my purposes are broken off, even the thoughts of my heart. Verse 15, where then is my hope? As for my hope, who can see it? Job 19, verse 25, 26, and 27 says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and I shall stand at last on the earth, uh, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Let's go to Psalms 42. Psalms 42, uh, verse 2 to 5, and verse 9. Psalms 42, 2 to 5, and 9. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, whom shall I come when shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, Where is your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of my countenance. Verse 9, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do, you go, why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Verse 11, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance, my God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. So before we start going through the part of Hebrews that we are talking about today, it is good that we understand the author, the audience, and the context of that portion um, of, scripture, of, of Scripture, Hebrews 5, uh, 11 to 6, um, the end of it, 20. So for the audience or the book of Hebrews, he is Paul, um, who is the author, is talking to Jewish Christians. Paul is not talking to heathens when he writes the book 
of Hebrews. Neither is he talking to the Greek people that were filled uh, that time and place. Neither was he talking to the Romans. He was actually talking to Jewish Christians. He was talking to people, uh, remember Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear ye, O Israel, your Lord, O God, is one. The Lord your God is God, the Lord is one. So these are people who knew God. These are people that actually um, worshipped God uh, in whatever way and form that they did. So the God was not something strange uh, to the audience that um, Paul was talking to in this book. So the audience is Jewish Christians, and I want you to keep that in mind. And most probably, especially for the book of Hebrews, uh, there were Jewish Christians living in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was where the temple was, uh, the seat of the Sanhedrin, where all the festivals used to happen and everything Judaism used to, to take place. Uh, what is the context? The context uh, from what we have studied from Hebrews chapter 1 up to now clearly shows that there were doubts that were coming up in the minds of these Jewish Christians of whether Jesus was truly the Messiah. That's why the author goes, to the, goes through pains to compare Jesus to angels, Jesus to Moses, Jesus to Aaron, um, Jesus to this and that, to show that Jesus is actually greater uh, than all these things. So there must have been doubts whether Jesus was truly um, the Messiah. Uh, also to create the context, in the early church in those days, there were debates whether uh, non-Jews had to convert to Judaism first before they could be allowed to become Christians. You'll hear uh, conversations of they still need to be circumcised uh, and they still need to follow the law of, um, of Moses, um, the Torah. So that's the context that the, the author of Hebrews is writing to a Jewish congregation um, who are going through uh, doubts whether Jesus is the Messiah and whether Christianity is um, separate from Judaism and whether people need to go to Judaism first for them to actually be followers um, of Jesus. So if you go now to Hebrews 5, uh, from verse 11 to 14, which says, Of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full of age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern uh, both good and evil. But I want to take you back to verse 10 so that you, you will understand verse 11, 14. Um, chapter 5 is talking about the priesthood of, of Aaron and how Jesus is greater um, than Aaron. And he says in verse 10, called by God, referring to Jesus, as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Then Paul goes to verse 11 and says, of whom we have much to say and to explain. But the author stops there because he realizes that these guys don't even understand the elementary principles of Judaism for him to be able to explain to them uh, the story of uh, Melchizedek. He is at pains of how will he talk about Melchizedek if they don't understand the, the, the oracles, the principles, and the elementary principles of the oracles of God. At this point, it is important to note that Christianity did not just fall from heaven. Christianity was birthed from a Jewish culture and from Judaism. So there are many things that are of Jewish culture and Judaism which are not distinctively 
Christian um, in nature. You see, for you and me, we have a touch point with God through Jesus. Uh, the, the first um, touch point you have with God is when you are taught about Jesus and you accept Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. But for this audience, uh, the Jewish Christians, their touch point with God was not through Jesus, but it was through Moses, Aaron, the laws, the prophets, and all those other things. That was their touch point and their root uh, to, to, to God. Um, and now Paul is coming to tell them that was correct, but it was just a shadow. Uh, if you read everything else that Paul has uh, talked about, it was just a shadow. Now your touch point to God is, is not Moses, is not Aaron, is not uh, the Torah. Your touch point is actually um, Jesus. So uh, again, this is an audience who are at a place where they're wondering, no, 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 we grew up being told uh, we, we have to recite the Torah. We, we grew up being told about Ezekiel. We grew up being told about Isaiah, but we didn't grow up being told about um, about Jesus. So the author here is not talking about elementary truths of Christianity, but he's talking about elementary truths of Judaism. And he's saying that by this time, you should be teachers in the law of Moses. Uh, by this time, you should be knowing the basic foundation of your own, um, your own history. And, but unfortunately, um, they were not there yet. So the author continues to Hebrews chapter 6 where he says, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptism, of laying on of hands, of resurrection from the dead, and of eternal judgment, and this we will do if God uh, permits. Uh, now, for those who studied English, the word therefore means for that reason. And when someone starts a statement with, for that reason, uh, what reason is he talking about? Uh, verse chapter 1 to chapter 5, he has spoken about how Jesus is greater. So he's now saying, for that reason, that Jesus is greater than Moses, Aaron, and the angels, let's leave the elementary truths of Christ and let's move on to perfection. But the confusion that normally comes when people hear elementary principles of Christ, you'll find as the church we now start teaching um, the things that I've mentioned in verse 1 to 3 as the elementary principles of the doctrine of Christ, uh, which is a misdemeanor. Because by the time the book of Hebrews um, was being written, the only doctrine of Christ that could have been talked about is what was written by the prophets and the Old Testament because there was no New Testament when Hebrews was being written. So Jesus did not appear in the book of Matthew. If you want to understand the doctrine of Jesus Christ, you go back to the book of Genesis, or you go read the things that are in um, um, in, in Exodus, in Leviticus, in Numbers, uh, what the prophets used to say. So the author of the Gospel of John in his first uh, uh, chapter pictures this and captures this correctly because he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with the God, with God, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Uh, the same came for witness, to bear witness to the light, so that all men uh, might believe through him. But he was not the light. He was just sent to bear witness to the light. That was the true light, which lighted every man 
that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not, but as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believed on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. Um, and the word was made flesh, and the world dwelt amongst us. So if you go back to Hebrews chapter 1, um, the same author of where we are reading now, he starts by laying the doctrine of Christ. Because if you read Hebrews chapter 1, um, verse 1 to 3, he says, God was at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, but in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom uh, also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had made, when he had by himself purged our sins, set at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than angels, as he inherited and obtained a more excellent name. So Paul, when he's talking to the Jewish Christians, the first thing that he lays is that doctrine of Christ. What is that doctrine of Christ? Um, uh, like what John said, Jesus was God's word expressed. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word became flesh. So Jesus was God's word expressed. He was the visible expression of an invisible uh, God. If you look at the book of Colossians, um, chapter 1, uh, verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. Uh, Colossians 2 verse 9 says, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily and you are complete in him who is the head of all principalities and all powers. So Jesus therefore is God. Um, uh, Jesus was there in the beginning. Jesus was the channel of creation. It says everything that was made was made by him, for him, and through him. So he didn't appear in Matthew. He was there in the beginning. Uh, and it says Jesus is eternal. Hebrews 1 verse 11 to 12 says they will perish but you remain. They will grow old like a garment, like a cloak you will fold them up and they will be changed but you are the same and your years never fail. So Jesus was eternal but John tells us that the word became flesh and it dwells amongst us. Then you'll understand what Hebrews is saying that he was made a little lower than angels was the word had to become flesh so he became a little lower uh, than angels and he became a little lower than angels um, uh, because Hebrews 2.14 says inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death uh, um, that is the devil and release 
Those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So he had to become a little lower than angels so that he can identify with us. If he was going to be a high priest, he had to be a high priest of people that he could identify. And the people that he was coming to be a high priest of were people of flesh and blood. So he had to reduce himself and become uh, flesh and blood, a little lower than angels, so that one, he can deliver us from the bondage of the fear of death. If there's nothing you understand about salvation, salvation is this one simple thing. I do not fear death. Because that's all that Jesus came to try and do in your life. So that like Paul, you can say, in him I live, I move, and I have my being. For me to die is gain, and for me to live is Christ. So the elementary truths that the, the author here in Hebrews is talking about are not elementary truths of Christianity, because nothing is distinctively Christian about what he has mentioned, but the elementary truths of Judaism. Um, and, and, and if you read uh, Leviticus 1, 4, chapter 1 and chapter 4, you realize how repentance from dead works, ceremonial washings, eternal judgment, um, were all things that were practices of Judaism, and not distinctively Christian, because they cannot be any elementary truth of Christian that does not uh, declare that man is fallen and man cannot save himself. Man can only be saved by grace. Uh, and that's why he says in Ephesians, uh, um, it's not by our works that we are saved, but it is a gift of God, a free gift of God that no man should boast. And that's the elementary truth of Christianity, that you are a fallen person and if it had not been of God's grace, you could not have been here today. So what Paul is telling these Jewish Christians is that you can practice the elementary principles of Judaism but be very far away from salvation. You can go through baptism, you can do all those things but you'll just be having the form of godliness but denying the power therefore. So he says in Hebrews chapter 10, um, I know someone else is going to preach about this, but I'll read it today. For the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. Let us move from elementary truths to perfection. Here Paul is saying practicing Judaism cannot move you to perfection. It says, for then will they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshippers, once purified, will have no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So Paul is saying, you can practice Judaism as much as you want, but that will not make you right with God. Maybe to bring it closer uh, to, to Christianity, if you go to 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become a sounding brass and a clinging symbol. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and I give my body to be burnt, but have not love, 
it profits me nothing. So Paul is saying you can speak in tongues, you can prophesy, you can give to Tandaza, but if you do not have love, then you are nothing. You can practice these elementary truths, but still be very far away from salvation. Uh, he continues in that first Corinthians 18 and goes to verse 10. He says, but when the time of perfection comes, when you move away from elementary truths and move towards perfection, when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. What partial things? The elementary truths of Judaism or speaking in tongues or prophesying or words of knowledge, he says they will become useless because when I was a child I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child but when I grew up I put away childish things. At this point in time you should be teachers but you are acting like children. And why are you acting like children? Because you just have the form of godliness uh, and you're practicing the elementary principles instead of going towards uh, perfection. He says, now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely just as God knows me completely. That's why the author of Hebrews says, let's move away from the elementary to perfection. The question then, what is perfection? Uh, uh, perfection is your actions, your motives, your life and mentality, all driven by faith, hope and love. Because that first Corinthians ends and says, and now abide faith, hope and love and the greatest is love. And why is love the greatest? Because God is love. And if God is love, Christ is love. Because because he is the exact expression of things. He is the visible expression of an invisible God. The author continues in Hebrews 6 to his Jewish Christians from verse 4 to verse 6 and says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers um, of the Holy Spirit um, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame again. Someone said these are the favorite scriptures for the devil. Because the day you sin, a small tiny sin, he directs you to this scripture. To tell you it is now impossible. Yeah? You are gone. You are done. There is no hope for you. But the devil is a liar. But what this scripture is saying, remember the context, the Jewish Christians with the elementary truths. And he is telling them, if you have moved from Judaism to Christianity and you have accepted Christ, you have received the Holy Spirit and you have done all these things. If you deny Christ, and go back to Judaism, it is impossible for you to get salvation. So he's not talking about falling. There's a difference between falling and falling away. The Bible says a righteous man, not an unrighteous man, a righteous man falls seven times and at each point he gets up. But the Bible here is talking about falling away, a complete denial of Christ. A complete abandonment of your faith. 
And for these Jewish Christians, they were abandoning because of the pressures that were there in Jerusalem, the persecution, uh, the rituals and everything that was there, they were getting pressure and the pressure was to fall back to thinking that practicing Judaism would give them salvation. And my brothers and sisters, the word impossible here means impossible. It does not mean it might be possible. It means impossible. Because the word impossible has been used again, so we have to be consistent in our interpretation. In Hebrews it says, it is impossible for God to lie. It is impossible to please God without faith. And it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So impossible here literally means impossible. Let me show you what that means. Let's go to the book of Galatians, chapter 5, from verse 1. Paul says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You cannot cherry pick from the Old Testament and say, we will keep this, we will keep this, and now this is the Old Testament. Paul says, once you decide to keep the Old Testament, you are a debtor to keep the whole of it. We should be expecting bulls and goats here. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. But faith working through love now remains faith, hope, and love. You ran well who hindered you from obeying the truth. The persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lamp. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind. But whoever troubles you shall bear his judgment whoever is. And I, brethren, if I still speak circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even be cut off. So the author is telling us, do not fall away. You might fall, but do not deny Christ. For salvation only comes through Jesus. Verse 7 to 8 of that Hebrew 6, he continues and he tells us, he gives us an analogy of the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessings from God, but if it bears thorns and barriers, it is rejected and near to being crushed whose end is to be burnt. He's again referring to the same thing. That once you have received Christ, and you decide, no, I'm denying him. You are no good apart from being bent. You are like ground that is producing thorns. And Jesus echoed this in John 15, verse 5. He says, I am the wine, I am the vine. You are the branches. 
He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. So Paul is bringing everything he has been saying in verse 1 to 5 into context and he's telling them, yes, Jesus is greater than all these things, but the, 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 the crux of the matter is, if you move away from this Jesus, you are doomed because your elementary principles are not going to take you to salvation. What causes you to fall away? Because it's not only them. Falling away did not stop then. What causes you to fall away? The author of Luke helps us with that. Luke 8, 11, 14, he says, this is the meaning of the parable. Luke 8, 11, 14, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is God's word. The seeds that fell on the footpath represent those who hear the message only to have the devil come and take it away from their hearts. Is your heart making you fall away? Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful. It is desperately wicked. As you are sitting here, your heart is concocting a plan to make sure that you fall away. It is desperately wicked. The word the says, who knows it? Verse 10 in Jeremiah 17, God says, But I know the heart. I search the heart. And that's why Jesus said, Some of you come and say, Lord, Lord, with your mouth, but your hearts are far away from, from me. Is your heart causing you to fall away from God? Verse 13 says, The seeds on the rocky soil represent those who hear the message and receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, they believe for a while, then they fall away when they face temptation. What is tempting you to fall away from Christ? 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 13 tells us all these examples that we've been given from the Old Testament were given so that we don't repeat the same mistake and be like them who tested God and ended up dying in the wilderness and did not get to the promised land. They fell away because of temptation. Verse 14 says, The seeds that fell among the thorns represent those who hear the message, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. What cares, what riches, and what pleasure in this life is making you to deny Christ? My friends, we read about Job. Job was at a point of falling away. Job had cursed the day he was born. Job, as we read, was saying, the grave is calling me, the grave is my home. Job was reaching a point of falling away because of the pressures that were around him. He was losing everything. And the people that were supposed to comfort him were miserable comforters, useless physicians. And Job was just about to fall away. We read about David. David was also about to fall away. David says, oh, I used to go to church. Oh, I used to be an usher. I used to sing in the worship. I used to give my tithe. I used to sing hallelujah and jump up high. But everything in my life seems to be asking me, where is your God? My bank account seems to ask you, where is this God that you, you follow? My colleagues at work seem to ask me, where is this God that you follow? And unfortunately, if you're like Job, 
if your wife is also asking you, curse God and die. Things can become hard. Pressure can come to try and get you to fall away. And the Jewish Christians that we are reading about here were in the same position of falling away. But Paul encourages them. In Hebrews 6 verse 9, he says, Beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak, there are better things for you, my brother and sister. Don't fall away. Somebody say better. For God is not unrighteous to forget the work and labor of life which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints uh, and, and do minister. Somebody say better. Uh, when the devil tells you that all is in vain, uh, let me tell you something. God has not forgotten all your labor. God has not forgotten those nights that you knelt down and you cried and you wept. God has not forgotten because God does not forget. Uh, Isaiah 49 tells us, um, uh, it says, but Zion said the Lord has forgotten forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me and God came to the scene and says can a woman forget a nursing child and have no compassion on the son of a wound surely they may forget yet I the Lord will not forget you see I've inscribed you on my palms on my hands your walls are continually before me your sons will make haste your destroyers those who laid you waste shall go from you lift up your eyes and look around all this gather together and come to you as I live says the Lord you shall surely clothe yourselves with them all as an ointment and behind them as you as a bride the Lord never forgets somebody say better Wherein God, verse 17, willingly and abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an author that by two things uh, which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation. We who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, somebody say better. If God has promised it, it doesn't matter what your neighbor says. If God has promised it, it doesn't matter what the economy says. If God has promised it, it doesn't matter what BBI says. Because it is impossible for God to lie. He is not the son of man that he should lie or man that he should repent. So if God said it, it's going to be somebody say better. He says, we have a strong consolation. We have a strong consolation. We who have fled for refuge. If you read Deuteronomy, the Bible says, God told them to make three cities of refuge. If someone killed someone unintentionally, they would run into that city of refuge and no one could take vengeance on them. But thank the Lord that the true refuge is Jesus Christ. Where the righteous run to and they are safe. Not just the righteous, but even the unrighteous run to him because the name of the Lord is a high tower. The righteous run into them and they are saved. Somebody say better. 
Verse 19 says, Which hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast, which entereth into that within the veil, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made high priest forever after the order of Meshizedek. Esther, Esther was in a quagmire. Uh, Mordecai wants him to go to the king, but she knows if she enters the king and the king has not called her, she is going to die. She is going to die. But she robed herself and entered and says, the king lifted the scepter. Oh, the righteousness of Christ clothes me so that when I stand in front of God, God stretches his scepter and I won't die if I enter the presence of God. Job knew this. He knew pressures were coming in his life. He knew things were hard and he wished to die. But something knocked sense to him and he says, I know my redeemer lives because as long as he lives, I shall face tomorrow. And it's not someone else who will see God for me. He says, with my own eye, I will see the Lord in the land of the living. David was downcast, but something knocked sense to him. He said, why are you downcast, my soul? Hope in God, because we're still going to praise him. Somebody needs to speak to their soul today and tell them, don't give up. Don't give up. Hope in God, because we shall surely see God. Romans 8 verse 24 says, for we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? What remains is faith, hope, and love. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, evidence of things not yet seen. So we might not be seeing it, but God is working. I may not be feeling it, but God is working. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for, um, uh, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groans which cannot be uttered uh, even when you're feeling low and you're about to give up. Just know the Holy Spirit is in on its knees uh, and it's interceding for you. Uh, it's speaking better over your life. Uh, it's speaking the blood of Jesus over your life. Uh, it's telling God this one is ours. Uh, just like in the children of Israel. Uh, there was darkness to the Egyptians uh, but there was light on the children of Israel. We are entering a season uh, where God is going to separate his children uh, from his non-children. Uh, where there's pestilence on this side. Uh, no pestilence will touch you uh, because uh, the spirit is interceding for you. And he says in verse 30, Moreover, whom he predestined, them he also called, whom he called, them he also justified, whom he justified, them he also glorified. When the Son of Man sets you free, you are free indeed. Verse 31 says, What shall we say then of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Somebody say better. Better healing, better deliverance, better promises, better covenant, better conversations, better relationship, better access to God. Oh, if you're backslidden, I want you to get up on your feet. If you're backslidden, get up. Don't stay down because I'm going to do a Brexit from the union with the world of sin. I am a child of God. I am created for something better. And the author... In verse 11 and 12, give us a call to action. 
and says, We desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye may not be slothful, but followers of them whom through faith and patience inherit the promises. He gives us a call to action that be diligent. Be diligent in prayer and in giving. Don't be slothful. Don't be lazy in serving. Even if the devil tells you you're doing it in vain, don't be slothful. And he says, Wait patiently for the promises of God. Be patient in suffering. Be patient in the stage of life that you're in because something, something better is coming your way. Pastor David. He's the king of kings.